independent spaces. What does it mean, right? And I am glad that we are here to talk about it in an independent space. Well, independent enough, hopefully. And we will discuss what exactly that means. So welcome to episode 64 of Tetarik with Wallet. And the second one that we are doing Tetarik with Wallet in real life. So I am delighted to have two very special guests today. Uh, two legends, you can say, in this space. Right? And the first is Mr. Fong Ho Fang. I don't know how many of you know this. I mean, the ones here obviously know. But uh, he was he was the founder of Ethos Books. And think about how much good that publication has done to Singapore. Right? So without him, you wouldn't have had all of that. All of that discourses, those books, and so on. And he is also the co-founder of Dakota Dreams, who is hosting us today. And hopefully not for the last time. Hopefully you'll host Tetari with a little more. Uh, and we have uh, Mr. Prashan Somosundaro, uh, and he is also, he will introduce himself later, right? That's how I ask him, what should I say about you? Then, then he rattle off a list of achievements, <laughs> 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 but he should have, right? Uh, and we will be talking about this, about independent spaces and what exactly it means. But before we do that, I just wanted to, it's a shout out for two members of parliament who are currently unwell, Mr. Faisal Manap and Mr. Lam Engkwa. So one has been diagnosed with a heart attack, was, was sent to the ICU. The other has recently been diagnosed with cancer. And I think wh whichever side of the political aisle you, you are on, you never want this to happen to your worst enemy. So hopefully they get well soon, uh, both of them. All right. So the first thing is, right, so what exactly, I wanted to ask, both of you can answer this. What is an independent space? And is there such a thing in Singapore, right? In Singapore, you have POFMA, you have uh, FICA, you have police permits, you have the Newspaper Licensing Act, you have all of these things. So what exactly does an independent space mean in Singapore? Uh, well, to me, uh, it needs a, um, a physical space, first of all. It must be a physical space because if it is a psychological space, then we have lots of that. Our thoughts are free, right? So we can grow anywhere with that. But it must be a physical space, in my view. And secondly, it must be a space where we feel safe. It's a safe space for us to discuss any topics under the sun. Uh, and uh, yeah, to me, that's an independent space. Is there such a space in Singapore where we feel the liberty to discuss? We have that. We feel we have the liberty to discuss any. Yes, we have that. The coffee shops where people talk, uh, where men uh, and rent against the government. Uh, that happens very often. That may, I think what you may be referring to or trying to get that would be a space big enough to accommodate uh, a, a fairly large audience. A place like perhaps uh, Hong Rin Park. Where, you, where there's a lot more uh, people can come in and not just a table of five or ten uh, sitting there uh, renting away, yeah. Thanks, sir. Yeah, I mean, for me, besides it being a physical space, there are a lot of independent physical spaces that exist, but I think the, the state of mind is also quite important. Uh, a lot of people don't really exercise the independence of their spaces as much as we would like them to because you know they they benefit from the status quo um that exists 
So for me, a lot of it with uh, independent space is how much we want to create a space that's conducive to counterculture, uh, to create spaces that's accessible for people who may not be able to these kind of spaces um, in, in other parts of Singapore. I think that to me is the interesting part of uh, creating an independent space uh, in, in Singapore. I mean, knowing how, you know, rents can be expensive, uh, we know that a lot of people may not be able to access to public or private spaces uh, in order to experiment and, and push certain boundaries that they want. Um, and, and for me, it's about creating that kind of space. We're, we're never really independent, you know, we're, even for Projector, we're licensed by the government. We're constantly aware that, you know, we have to apply for all these kind of licenses to do whatever we need to do. But I think where we practice our independence is to try and push these boundaries and not be fearful of people who are uh, doing things with the, within the, the legal limits. Um, I mean, one example is like, you know, anti-death penalty kind of talks, which uh, a lot of other independent spaces may shy away from for us is as long as it's within, you know, the legal guidelines that we have for indoor spaces and all, we're willing to push that boundary and, and create that space for dialogue. So the space must be both physical and psychological. Right. Okay. So <clears throat> based on what uh, you just said, right? Uh, when you said that maybe some people do not think they are as free as they should be or they are not thinking as freely as they should be. Do you think um, sometimes people who operate in ind independent spaces, they have this view of the lady, the layman, the lay Singaporean, and it's perhaps a condescending view, right? Where, what's, how is that different? Uh, not that I disagree with you, I'm pushing you a little... Uh, uh, how is that different from the government saying, oh, you don't know what's good for you, right? We know, right? You are also saying the same thing from a different uh, different place, right? Uh, I, I wouldn't say that I, I treat it differently. I mean, for us, we create that space, but we always, we don't speak for people generally. We've, we do find stakeholders within the communities to then take up that space and, and speak for themselves. So, uh, the, the same thing with like, um, I mean, we've done, you know, talks on homeless issues and all that, but we don't do the talking. We create the space, we make it accessible for them through some way. I mean, we don't do sponsorships. We always find a way to make it sustainable because we have overheads and all that we need to cover. But we do find people and stakeholders from that community to be there. So we are more of a platform for what you would term as a lay person. But, you know, for us, they are all you know, community stakeholders and whatever issues that we want to, to platform, we find people within the community to speak for themselves. Okay. So why, why is it important, Mr. Fong? You've started to, to already, right? Why, why, why the need for an independent space? Uh, I think this important because, uh, like Prashant says, for alternative um, narratives to come out, to show what the other parts of the uh, of Singapore, what the other Singaporeans in Singapore are thinking, and these are people without a um, without access, easy access to a voice, right, um, to a platform, and so therefore, uh, by having a space there, um, uh, an independent space where the uh, the person who who 
uh, allows that platform, will not self-censor, will not prejudge as to what is happening. One example, okay, uh, for example, if somebody comes and says they want to run a workshop on how to make a bomb, will we allow it? I would allow it, actually. Uh, yes, I would allow it, because that is a... Uh, it's something that uh, that works, right? Uh, how but to edit this part out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you learn how to make a bomb in the army. I learn how to do it when I was in NS. So what's wrong with that, right? But I think the concern is that what are the people who are attending that uh, particular talk going to do with that knowledge, right? And that is something that we cannot control because if the space is there. Or, or they can learn it on the internet, they can learn it anywhere. We must learn to deal with that rather than to just censor everything off. I don't know, that's my view, my personal view. So so I I, I get the maybe maybe we, let's let's move away from that example, which is not endorsed by Tita <laughs> Hip. let's let's not Let's not use that example, but I get what you're saying. So even we must give space to even the most abhorrent of ideas. Right? And then we debate it and and a person, um, and I, I do agree with you as well, right? Ultimately, when a person does something, it is on that person, right? Like, if that person read somebody else or or whatever it is. I mean, if that person read a hundred books and one ha one of them happened to be Karl Marx, you cannot possibly blame Marx for that. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah, okay, okay, yeah. And, and uh, do, do you agree with that? Like, all ideas, like, even the most abhorrent of ideas should be platformed. Uh, I think for me, I'll probably draw certain boundaries here. Uh, I, I mean, for us also, we try and strike a balance. We are a commercial entity. You know, I have, you know, 35 uh, mouths to feed. <laughs> so it's it's really quite important for me to strike that balance in, in figuring out what we allow within our space. And if we do find, and I mean, to be frank, we've, we've had instances where People whose views we don't agree with wanted to rent our space, uh, which, you know, we decided that we didn't want to do it because, you know, they have other avenues that they can access this space. And we are not comfortable platforming these opinions and, and this community in that sense. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, while we are independent in that sense, we do have opinions and we are subjective in, in that sense. Uh, and so we, we do have a discussion within the team to see, you know, whether we are comfortable platforming these kind of opinions, which we don't agree with, and, and where do we draw the line? So where, uh, where, where do you draw the line? I mean, for, for that particular instance, we decided not to. Uh, and, and it's largely by looking at who, which other communities may be impacted by these opinions. And if somebody else, and particularly a marginalized community, is going to be hurt, or, uh, you know, it, it kind of victimizes vulnerable communities. It's not something that we're comfortable doing. And that's why we then said, even if it's a private venue hire, we're not comfortable with this taking place in our space. Okay. Thank you. I hope there's time to explore that uh, a little bit further, but I want to, uh, I want to move on back, back to the, back to the topic. So you guys, uh, I don't know. The audience maybe half may understand the the next point that I'm talking about. So I, I think the two of you have watched Yes Minister, or at least have heard of it before. Maybe the younger ones have, have not seen. 
And there, there, there is this one scene. So it's a British comedy series about a civil servant and a minister who became eventually, uh, it became prime minister. There's this one scene where the <clears throat> civil servant who re represents the upper tier of a society, whereas the minister actually comes from a more humble background. And the civil servant was saying that you must always allow the arts to flourish, right? Arts and the music, uh, this is really for high society. And whereas the other person was saying, uh, the minister was saying, no, this is for a very privileged group, a very elite and elitist group, right? So and this, this question is really for, for question, right? Why is art important? Do you think that art is the domain of the privilege? Mm, I think it's quite hard to generalize art as you know i mean the different tiers obviously uh for for arts and i mean there's community arts programs there's a lot of people who are not artists but are involved in the arts and and i do find there's a lot of value for arts as an expression uh that i i find people and i mean it's also sometimes when you go to a museum and you're like well like this also can you know like you know I, I mean, how how does that become art? So, <laughs> no, so I mean, it's, it's really a, a mindset in terms of, for me, art is a way of unlocking a critical engagement with certain issues, uh, particularly with, with film in, in our case and, and with performance art. Uh, it allows us to then have dialogues after that uh, or engagement with it. I, I really don't think it's it's the high-end contemporary art. I mean, that exists, but it's not in a space that we engage in. So that's a art gallery, the kind of finding Gilman and all that. But I mean, for us, it's a lot more of community engagement kind of projects. Um, and, and I do find a lot of value in that. Um, I mean, actually, a lot of my experience starting in the arts in Singapore was uh, through Migrant Voices. It was... Uh, uh, when I came back from studies in 2004, around then, like we, I participated in a Necessary Stage Fringe Festival program, working with migrant workers. Um, so I, I helped with the Tamil translations for uh, like migrant workers who actually formed their own bands and all, and, and they would jam on, you know, every Sunday uh, on their days off. And through that, then we, a group of us started this organization called Migrant Voices that engaged in, you know, forum theater projects. Uh, with migrant workers, and then we staged it in public spaces and all that. And I mean, it's interesting, like then, where, where you bring art into a communal space or a liminal space kind of environment, people then feel that they can engage with it better rather than if it's in a gallery or, or, or something like that. And, and people who are then participating in this theater performance piece, so the public, regular members of public would then step up and, and take up space within these performances. And, and there was interesting conversations that were unlocked from these kind of forum theater projects and all that. So, I, yeah, I mean, I think, sorry, I went on a rant, but, like, yeah. but I, I, mean, I do think that there's, there's a lot of value in arts as a form of expression and engagement for, for different tiers of society. Yeah. Mr. Fong, you have anything to add? Uh, yeah. I, I, I remember reading uh, or seeing this uh, report in the papers about a, a violinist, Joshua Bell. He's one of the most accomplished violinists in the world, right? He spent about, what, half an hour, 20 minutes? at a subway in America playing one of the most intricate pieces 
on uh, on a, on his violin, which was worth thirty-two million dollars, right? And during the point he paid, people were just walking past him and thought he was just a uh, not hustler, uh, what you call a busker, you know? He collected thirty-two dollars, right? In the in the period of time. So does it mean that the people, the average man, doesn't appreciate that kind of art, that kind of music? No, because when they dug deeper. We found that people have no time, and you have no time, you won't listen, you just walk past. You need to have time in order to enjoy music, right? And in the same way, I think, art is never the privilege, or rather, it has been made so, the privilege of the elite. It has been made so. I also know another artist, uh, a friend, who went to prison, and she spoke to women prisoners and got them to do a quilt made a quote that represented their, their, their feelings, you know. And I think, subsequently, these quotes were exhibited and people enjoyed them. Exhibited what that, I think, if I'm not wrong, right? And people enjoyed them. So, I mean, art is, Prashant has it, you know? It, it can be enjoyed at different levels, right? It, but it has been made uh, what do you call a domain of the elite because these are the people with money, these are the people with power. And so, I mean, the guys who, I mean, Joshua Bell, when he played that, he, what happened was that the night before, just the night before, he played to a solo audience of people who paid $100 just to listen to him play for, play that piece, same piece. And here he collected $32. Yeah. So, okay. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, just to, to add on that, it's, it also goes to how we value art, right? I mean, if you see an art in a white bag, you think, okay, that, whereas you see it in a gallery framed within certain things, there's a different value to it. So sometimes, I mean, we also as uh, patrons or what, it, you know, can be at fault in a way in terms of how we value and, and perceive art in a way. But, okay. Thank you so much. So, can you, can the two of you briefly share your own experiences in starting independent spaces? <laughs> uh, okay. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I touched on it a bit already, but yeah, so it, it started out actually a lot with uh, Margaret Moises, uh, which, which was a arts charity that we started. Um, and, and it was always a challenge to find spaces, whether it was to run workshops every Sunday or whether it was to stage performances and uh, for, for the migrant, with the migrant workers. Uh, so it was then where I was like, oh, you know, we in Singapore, we need to find. And, and I had been come, I had been in the States for a while, for four years, uh, doing my undergrad on a government scholarship. So um, I also needed, I, so I was a, a military officer for six years after my studies, but I really needed a creative outlet. And so that's how Migrant Voices, uh, I got involved in Migrant Voices. Um, so the moment I left the Air Force, I, I felt that my calling in a way was to, to create these kind of spaces. Um, you know, I, I had a certain level of salaries in my, in my six years and I had that money that I wanted to invest into. Uh, creating a space and so that's why I started out this space called Artistry uh, in Arab Street area. Uh, so this was a cafe by day and at night we would carry all the tables out 
and create space for uh, experimental music or, or performances and, and all that. So going back to how rents are so expensive in Singapore, it was difficult to have a large space enough to run a cafe and a performance space, but we you know, did a night and day kind of uh, approach. And, and that's how I started getting involved in, in a lot of creative communities in Singapore. So there are a lot of creative people in Singapore. They just don't have spaces to experiment and, and perform and, and access. And, and a lot of it, I mean, even now, like for the spaces that I run, I have to be so conscious about noise issues and, and all that. Uh, because there are residents nearby, we get shut down, everybody suffers and all that. So it's it's always trying to manage this balance, uh, and that's uh, something that I learned in artistry, where you know we we were neighboring undertakers, but also neighboring hotels and all that. So trying to figure out how to push boundaries without pissing off your neighbors, and and also creating space uh, without you know burning your bridges and and such. So that that happened, and then at that point, projector, which was already so projector started up. Um, in 2014, uh, I wasn't part of the founding team, but I was part of the Kickstarter project. So the way Projector started was uh, the, the founders, they, they found a disused cinema space in Beechwood, uh, which was a 1970s cinema that had, was the largest single screen at that point, but it had since been converted into a three-screen kind of space. Uh, it's been partitioned, um, but it was disused for a long time. And, and they have found this space and felt that there was a need for an uh, independent cinema uh, in Singapore. So they then uh, ran a Kickstarter project, which was actually, on hindsight, a great thing because it generated a lot of publicity and community investment in, in the project without even starting up yet. Um, so there was a lot of buzz. People were excited about it. Uh, you know, they donated $120 to have their names emblazoned on the seats and, and all that. Uh, so there's a lot of excitement. So by the time it launched in 2014, uh, you know, it has strong community support and people were quite excited for this to exist in Singapore. It almost was like, I mean, for the content that was showing, like Operation Spectra, uh, am I getting the right? There was a documentary on uh, Cold Star, I think. Now I forget. But people would come and they would feel like, you know, they're doing something that is illegal in Singapore because it offered that kind of environment, but actually it was all fully legal. But it's just that nobody was willing to to do these things at that point in time. Um, yeah, so at, and, and at, at that time, then Projector uh, approached me to, having seen the, the kind of live performance stuff that I was doing at Artistry, was interested in trying to also expand beyond film and, and do so. Then I took over the... Uh, operations in Projector uh, two years after they started. Um, and then long story short, we merged into a single entity and now I, I run the full space. So that's brought us here. Thank you. Mr. Fong? Um, yeah, I I mean, I, I, Prashant has done a wonderful job. I remember doing his space uh, for our parties and uh, talks and so on. All free. We just had to buy a, a drink or something. And he was sort of generous, you know. I mean, because of that, the uh, ethos uh, flourished. Yeah, we, we will buy more drinks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, coming back to this thing, I think a space is very important. Uh, a physical space for people to bond, to discuss. Uh, and I mean, look, even Lee Kuan Yew needed a basement. 
in the auxiliary, right? To start off the PAP, right? And that was how the PAP started. And and I remember many, many times, I mean, if you, those of us who have done NS and so on, if you have been through with a group of um, fellow recruits or whatever and you live through the, the, those three months or whatever that you live with them, in the same physical space, right, in the same physical space, despite all the hardship, I'm pretty sure the, 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 some of the recruits still come together. In my experience, I was the sixth batch of uh, NS guys. My batch of recruits, those guys I went to recruit with and so on, until today, we meet every year. We have watched each other's kids grow up over the last 40 years. Every year without fail, we meet on the second day of Chinese New Year. Of course, not everybody makes it, but there's a big enough group. And that came about because of that physical space that we shared. Physical and mental space, you know? That we went through this hardship together, we went through this uh, thing together. And I'm sure many of the NS guys were bad NS would share the same thing. You could buddies are your, your, your fellow recruits, right? And so because of that, we felt that the space uh, was necessary. And, but unfortunately, uh, we could not afford uh, to, because we were also a commercial enterprise, and the commercial enterprise uh, was there to sort of make money, to feed mouths, uh, and uh, unlike Prashant, I was, not, I was a bit more frightened, you know, I said I got to make the money first and then try and do this thing, yeah? So we rented, but we allow our space to be used for talks, for discussions, or whatever, you know, whatever is necessary. But in the, so then as we sort of, uh, over the last, um, um, after 20, 30 years, we were stable enough, right, to be able to even rent a space. Uh, there was a space called Agora uh, sometime back, you know, uh, where a friend who was also, uh, who also shared these ideas, he rented the space and we tried to support it by allowing that space uh, for civil society members, for people who might be interested to discuss it, to come together and to discuss it free. Yeah. Uh, they have to provide their own coffee, unfortunately. Yeah. Right. Uh, so we, we did it way. But all this has led me to the, to the um, conclusion that actually we need a space that is owned by civil society. Right. Um, Think of the Huiquans, the Chinese clan associations, a lot of them are dead and gone now, as in like, um, you know, we never hear of them, right? Except for the Hokkien ones, the Onyan city and so on. But there are still pockets of them. And why do they still exist? Because they own property. They bought property in the early days, you know, and they use it as a space for discussion, for helping, their fellow uh, clansmen, uh, and that developed into a, a, something that has stayed even, even, in, uh, even today, right? Um, but of course, you know, uh, apart from the hardware, you also need the hardware, you know, and this is where civil society has to make your work, yeah? So I would say we need to own a space, yeah? Mm.
online communities cannot replace physical communities, right? Okay. So thank you. Uh, so a reminder that you can tap in your questions and anyone from the audience as well can just share your comments or thoughts. Just a shout out to two people. Sorry, this will always happen. Um, <laughs> our two famous guests of Teta Revalid, Sarah uh, and Sudeir, who recently uh, joined the exclusive but ever-expanding club of people that have been Pofmart, well, his publication has been Pofmart. Um, so, uh, thank you, thank you for making it. And I, I wanted to turn turn up the temperature a little, okay, so... They want to watch a little bit. So, um, you know, I would say, I think a lot of people would say, and I would concur with this as well, that civil society in Singapore has largely been co-opted. Yoyan is not here, right? So aware, aware, maybe you can say it, aware it has been co-opted. Uh, Pink Dot, to some extent, has been co-opted. Uh, and and some activists, right, they enjoy the patronage of the state. Right? They enjoy getting invited to these events and, and so on. And there is something about that that does, it, it does something to you, you know, the being in the circles, at the halls of power and influence. Even if you may not have actual power, right? But being around that, it does something to you spiritually, emotionally, I think. Um, Cyril, would you guys agree with that? That civil society in Singapore has largely been co-opted. Of course, there are the Joe Medias which has not been and will not be <laughs> co-opted. There's the Alfians uh, and there's the Customs, but those are few and far between. The fact that I can rattle them off, and it's not even a long list, maybe, is that true? Civil society has been co-opted to the point that it is toothless? Well, I mean, it depends. The, the names you mentioned, Afian, Kersen, and so on, these are individuals. These are individuals. And... As individuals, the responsibilities are a little different from if you run an organization, right? Because when you run an organization, you have to be aware that there are 35 mouths to feed or there are other people to, to take care of, right? And I, I believe in any, in any country, things are not about always getting your own way. It cannot be that way because then you'll be at one extreme. Things are about to some extent about compromise, right? Some things you can come together and discuss and compromise, some things you can't. So it's up to the, that organization to de uh, depend on. I'll give you an example, Ethos Books. When we first started out, we did not take uh, state funding for some of our books, right? Uh, then along the way, somebody came and convinced me that we should take state funding to promote books. And then you look here and you say, yeah, why not? But you must remember, you do that, I take state funding, Ethos takes state funding only for books or makes an application for state funding only for books which we know fall outside the narrative. Uh, sorry, fall within the narrative. Or at least if not within the narrative, uh, I mean, Sometimes you can be outside the narrative, but as long as it's not too sensitive, like Brahms, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, 
you, 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 as long as you do that, yeah, that is a compromise, but it is not a corruption because you must still remember that at the end, you still have to pursue the, the end objective, which is about truth, integrity in certain things, right? But you recognize that you may have to give in other areas. It's not that part of war, isn't it? I, I don't know. I used to, <coughs> my size, I used to take part in the type of war, but I wasn't the guy pulling. I, I was the guy who was instructing people how to pull. So, and you remember, there are times when you must hold rather than pull. There are times you must hold rather than pull. Only then can you win. You know? It's not always the strongest guy wins, the strategy involved, right? Sometimes you must give you a little bit and hold, and then you pull, right? So, and this is the same in society, I feel, yeah. Okay. So compromise is not cooperation. Yes, and then, I mean, actually just to echo that beyond just strategy, there's, there's uh, or to borrow an ethos title, it's the art of advocacy, uh, which is really quite important in the way we do things here. Uh, I mean, for us, especially a projector, it's, it's about being here for the long term and that whole sustainability. You can either go hard, go fast, and you get shut down and, and you lose that platform. Or you can tread that fine balance and, and try and work things, but become a trusted entity, which then, you know, we, there's this whole politics of engagement that you can have with uh, government entities. So uh, maybe full disclosure, I'm also part of Ping Dot, um, one of the organizing committee members. And from, from that activism point of view, we do understand like in, in the spectrum of activism, there's a whole range of ways you can do things. For us, from the start, it has always been about trying to engage the authorities because we know the context in Singapore is that change doesn't come from, you know, certain ways. There, there are people who push those boundaries and we actually do support them in, in different ways. And, uh, but for us, it's a lot of also backdoor diplomacy and engagement and all that in order to get, you know, certain policy changes happening. Uh, the same way with Projector, we, I mean, I'm not sure if many of you know, but till now, uh, Chinese dialect films are banned from theatrical releases in Singapore uh, because we had a, a Mandarin policy in the past uh, and it's a legacy whereas on streaming platforms like Netflix and all there are no restrictions on this so theatres and I should penalize like all the Hong Kong films that you get to see for theatrical release tend to be uh, Mandarin dubbed uh, and we've been trying to push that and engaging but nobody wants to to, to slaughter that but for us, it's, it's also, we pick your battles. Like, you, you continue pushing, you try and, and, you know, they have this rule where if it's a festival, then you can do a Chinese dialect film. So what we do is then we, we find festivals like the Wong Kar Wai Festival or, or, you know, some other festival, and we, we try and, and program these uh, films under them. So we work within this, but also make it very challenging for them to defend that policy, which, which may be outdated. And hopefully by pushing these boundaries, then, you know, we, we do it. So we, I, I wouldn't say we are co-opted. I think we, we are constantly engaging the governments that be and pushing those OB markers or boundaries or whatever uh, as we go along. I, I think the two of you have really identified a useful way of thinking about activism as well, right? It doesn't have to be like outright challenging the government all the time. There's, there's a time. There's a time for that. But that doesn't have to be all the time, right? Yeah. 
Sorry, you wanted to? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, final question from me before we we get uh, audience participation is almost a full house. So, another a criticism of activists or people in independent spaces, right? Uh, we have our own language, and or we use terminologies which people do not use sometimes. Like even even just now in. Uh, in your very first answer, Prashan, you were saying uh, uh, you were using words like oh, unsafe, uh, marginalized communities, uh, whereas other people may find may find the term unsafe to mean completely something different, right? Uh, and also the, the, the way that you were using it, it comes from a very liberal, maybe woke-ish place. Right, even if we don't want to use the word or what you you get what I'm saying, uh, and this can be sometimes distant from the people, right? So this is a question similar to the earlier one that is about activism in general or independent spaces in general, right? Are independent spaces, are people who operate in independent spaces, really distant from the ground, quote unquote? I would say yes and no. I mean, yeah, it's it's definitely the the space that we have doesn't cater to the masses the way you know you expect. I mean, people may relate more to like a golden village or, or something like that, um, and and that's fine. Like, I mean, but where we try and work is with intermediaries to unlock spaces for people who who need it. And, and to create that kind of um, dialogue. I, I mean, so an example for, for us is uh, there's this whole punk community in, in Singapore who have no spaces to perform, uh, largely because they, they don't run their own clubs and, and all that. Um, so where we work with is actually with party promoters who, who bring in these uh, punk gigs and all that, who... And, you know, we allow them to uh, to find ways to... Uh, we, we find creative ways to make it viable for both us and for the punk community to run their gigs within our spaces. But, um, so while day-to-day -day we may not be speaking to this community in that sense, or they may not be hanging out in our space and all that, we do... If, if they do approach us and all that, we find ways to make it happen other than turning them away because they cannot afford that. Um, and and so going back to why there's always food and drinks involved with <laughs> with our spaces. I mean, when I started artistry, that was the first thing. I was like, okay, we, we cannot create a space where there's no FMB because people will spend money on food and drinks, but they won't spend money on arts. You know, so to me, it's always like you, you find ways to let people access these spaces, whether it's through something more familiar, like a primal tea as opposed to like paying for a $10 gig kind of thing. Um, so, but, but I mean, we, we recognize that it doesn't, it's not a void deck space, you know, and then the people who, who use that space and we, we a bit different, our price points are a bit different higher, but it's the reality of a commercial space. But, uh, and it's, it's a balance that we, we strike uh, and a lot of our, more atas kind of operations actually help to fund the more accessible kind of um, things that we do with with different communities. 
So yeah, it's always about striking that balance. Um, but we don't we don't also speak for these people, like I mentioned. Like we we just provide the space and we let them take over and and see what happens. Thank you. I think when Karl Marx first came out with his thesis, nobody understood him except the intellectuals. But that thesis or that those theories went on to affect probably half the world, right? So in the same way, I think what the people who are doing the in, uh, who are using independent spaces for discussion and so on, in the same way. What they're proposing is something new, it's different, it's bringing to awareness new ideas, which may be alien to most people. But at the same time, if it's not done, then there'll be no change, right? So it's not a defense of, uh, of what is happening, but it is also a way uh, to show that these people were informed by certain ideas and they're trying to translate those ideas to the ground. Some do it more effectively, some are able to relate better, some less, right? That's all. But it's really a question of time before I think uh, this happens. So you need time for the education to happen. But what's important is the platform, as Prashant said. It's the platform because uh, I give you an example. Um, just two, three years ago, the, I think sub uh, workers made possible a, a group of almost a hundred organizations and individuals released two statements on not the lorries. Yeah, on the lorries, right? Would the migrant workers themselves have been able to do that? No, they wouldn't have been able to do that. Look at what happened to the guys who did the SMRT strike, the the the, the yeah the bus strike, right? So they, they, these are the ones who don't have a voice. So they need someone else to come out with a statement. And probably half the, half the uh, migrant workers do not and can't even read what a statement is all about. But they will enjoy it. And, and if they knew what it was all about, they would definitely support it wholeheartedly, I'm sure. Yeah? So this is the situation. Yeah. Sorry, so, Mande. I mean, yeah, 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 so just, just relating to that, actually, I think, yeah, it's quite important to also highlight in a way, yeah, I mean, we, we are from a privileged position, like owning and running these spaces, uh, not owning, but running these spaces. Uh, but it's important uh, how we use that privilege also on that. So, yeah, I mean, the, the whole, you know, migrant workers and, and the lorry thing is, is quite important in a way that it, we, like all these organizations, including Projector, came to, to put our privilege behind this uh, policy and hopefully effect some change because it's been going on for way too long, uh, and they've always been deferring it. Uh, so I think there was a genuine interest among these communities to try and push for that change. Yeah. Right. So there are multiple layers to the answer, right? So one is, yes, sometimes it starts off an elitist idea, but it spreads. Another one is the privilege must use their voices. And the, uh, the third one is what you said earlier, which is there are multiple grounds, right? So I always... Sometimes our know, politicians, they want to dismiss your your question. Right? And it has happened to me a few times already, right? Uh, when you ask them something, then they'll say, oh, if you go to the ground, you'll know that what you're saying is not the, what are you talking about? I am that on the ground. <laughs> this is one ground. There are other grounds. There are multiple grounds in Singapore, right? You cannot just dismiss what I'm saying because you heard some other person. I am telling you these matters, right? Like simple thing. 
I'm gonna go on right now. So I asked my, <laughs> I asked this person, right? Uh, this MP. Oh, there are no, there are no ATMs around here. Oh no, now everybody uses pay now. No, uh, now everybody is cashless. I say, oh, there are many elderly here. Oh no, no. I say, what are you talking about? I am saying I have an elderly mother. I know what I'm talking about, and you're just dis dismissing it as, oh, if you go to the ground, I don't know what, what ground they are going to also, when they are on their first week. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so any any questions from uh, the floor or any comments? Oh, there's one. You tapped it instead of saying. <laughs> so Sudira has a question for both. How has the concept of independent space in Singapore changed since you first experience a political awakening. Do you think it's easier or harder today to cover out these spaces? Okay, so maybe we need a timeline also, right? So would you say that since Okay, well, when you guys had a political awakening is not the same when I had a political awakening, right? So twenty eleven maybe, post twenty eleven, and maybe in the past three, four years. Do you see do you see an expansion of the space since 2011, which was a watershed election? Or do you see expand contract, expand shrink, expand shrink, shrink, shrink? <laughs> which one do you see? <laughs> sorry, sorry, oh, yes. Peace, peace. But like, uh, assuming that, you know, Ho Fang would answer from a different time period and Prashant would answer from a different ah, okay, time period. Okay, yeah, yeah. So in, ter in terms of their respect. So we can, we can do that as well. So so let's uh, let's so we may uh, do a, a deep diving. Uh, I mean uh, I started back in 1979. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, and uh, in those days it was much easier because there was less civilians, or the civilians was not as sophisticated. They had to be physically ground to find out what was happening before they try and uh, shut it down. So it was easier, and I had my own basement in those days, so it was easier, much easier. Today, I think, today it was much more difficult. Um, and you can see here, they recognize the importance of these independent spaces. Huh? I mean, yesterday, uh, 2001, when, uh, when the Workers' Party won a GRC, or two. Two, was it two? Oh uh, yeah, one GFC. Immediately, HDB passed all the open spaces to the People's Association to manage. Because otherwise, you'll be managed by the town council, right? So they recognize that. And so you can see that that shrunk immediately the space. Uh, I mean, fair for, for alternative voices, yeah? Uh, and so it is a question of opening, closing, opening, closing. But I think the saving grace now is that there are a lot more young people who have not been clobbered yet. So they are braver, they are more open, and they have seen more of the world. So they say, what's wrong you're using this space? You know? Uh, right? So they are more open to it. But every now and then you will get clobbered. Um, yeah, I... I I, I don't have a good example, because I think most of you know that, yeah. <laughs> but you want an example, can't see me afterwards, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, for me, it's, it's, I will go with the open-close, open-close, in a way that 
it's very hard for us to be quite clear where the boundaries are. Um, sometimes we think certain things will pass and it doesn't. And sometimes we were like, there's no way this will pass and we submit it and it's like, oh, it gets clear. So it's, it's this whole murky waters of, I mean, and I'm talking about in the context of censorship um, for, for the content that we show. It's, it's sometimes very hard because the code is very loosely worded. You know, like uh, if you're talking about LGBT stuff, it, you know, you cannot like, uh, forget the exact words, but it's like you cannot have positive portrayal of this as a lifestyle and all that. So then it becomes, but then a lot of stuff somehow gets allowed, which we are quite surprised to. So it's always this, uh, you know, you submit and then you wait, see what happens, and then you appeal and, and all this. So it's this constant engagement, which actually for a business can be quite frustrating because uh, there's always a time lag. Things may be, it, by the time it gets clear, we, we had a, 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 okay, our, yeah, we had a film that was quite sensitive because it featured a regional politician um, and, and talking about corruption and stuff. So even though we thought it would have cleared easily, but because of political sensitivities within government to government, it was delayed for a long time before it got cleared. And this has commercial impact for entities like us. Um, so it's sometimes quite frustrating uh, for us to figure out what our programming is because by the time it gets delayed, then we have to figure out ways to plug it and, and that affects your revenue streams and your bottom lines. So they're very real bread and butter issues for a commercial entity like us. And the frustrating part of it is it's all very ambiguous and till now, you know, we, we don't have clear guidelines on what's allowed and what's not allowed because they're all loosely worded, which fair enough, it gives them the flexibility also to then allow things to pass for us. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yes, so we have a question from the floor. So, Sorry, sorry, I maybe I'll go over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll go over there. Yeah. Do you want to come in? Uh, okay, actually, I was wondering what kind of boundaries this kind of censorship and asking will it pass or not might, oh, and also might uh, produce in your heads, just uh, preventing you from handing something in at all. So, can you talk a little bit more about that? Okay. So what's the process of self-censorship like? How do you decide when to submit, when not to submit, right? That's the question? Yeah. Yeah. So there are costs to submitting a film for censorship. Uh, for every 30 minutes, it's $82. So if it's a two-hour film, it's a $320 uh, cost uh, in order to submit it. And for example, so then if it gets censored or edited, you you know we won't be able to show it but we still have to pay that so there are certain costs that uh as a commercial entity we need to bear so for us we are also mindful can we you know if we're limited to one we, we've made this mistake before as a learning it was a run documentary which we have paid for the license for three screenings but then in the end imda was like oh you can only do one screening and so you know, we couldn't get our money back. We couldn't make money from it. So, you know, it was a loss-making thing. So for us, as much, I mean, 
as much as we would like to, we'd like to submit everything and see what comes back uh, and in terms of what's allowed or not. But unfortunately, uh, we need to make commercial decisions to see whether what, what's the risk of it being edited. And as a policy, Projector doesn't screen films that require cuts, uh, just to, to honor the, the director's wish. Um, so th this is the kind of balance that we, we tread. Uh, but sometimes we, we really want to we're not sure we just try and push it and, and find out, but we, we absorb the cost of that censorship in that sense, if it requires any cuts. Was that the question you all? I didn't know that. This was, <laughs> this was new to me. I was a little bit more thinking about, uh, if you know there's a censorship out there, you will just, it makes boundaries in your head, just thinking far enough that would be my suggestion but i'm not sure i would like to hear your take on it so self-censorship as opposed to actual censorship because you are anticipating the boundaries and what happens is you draw the boundaries nearer in yeah i think for us when when in doubt we try and and submit it and let them make the decision um so we for us it's usually more commercial decision rather than uh, because usually if we come to the point where we want to submit it it's it's very spicy kind of content that we we want to screen uh, so we do think there's value in it uh, but it's just whether we can make it commercially viable uh, so in that sense we don't necessarily practice self-censorship um, it's only if we think that it's not going to be commercially viable then we find ways to either negotiate license fees or, or figure ways to, to make it happen, even as a single screening. Because there, there are you know, different ways of, of paying for, for licenses in, in Singapore. Um, I'm into books, so I mean, uh, not films. Uh, I, I dare say that in all these years, I've never self-centered any book except one. And this one was a self-censor. Um, it was a book of political cartoons by, uh, by the late Morgan Chua. Morgan Chua was a Singaporean who did fantastic political cartoons. Uh, he was employed, uh, I mean, he had to leave Singapore because uh, his cartoons didn't find favor in the official eyes. And he left Singapore and went to work for the Far Eastern Economic Review, right? So. And then, of course, Far East Economic Review collapsed, or, or rather uh, closed down, and he returned to Singapore. I commissioned him to do a series of uh, cartoons. And at the point of time, those cartoons were all, I mean, I, I had no issue with them, yeah? But the particular cartoon for the cover uh, was something that I knew would get us into trouble. And not just trouble, it would bring the weight of everything onto us. Ah, oh, this is the plot for the book, right? <laughs> when it comes out, yeah. So this was two years ago. Oh. Two years ago. And that book has been kept in cold storage because I did not, I, I, I felt that it would be too dangerous for us to come out with a particular book at that point of time. But two years has passed. And uh, it's still dangerous, but less so. Wow. And it will be coming out. <laughs> so we're ready to buy it. <laughs> and everyone here will get a free copy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
you have that dust. You know what that requires? And whoever comes, especially in this town. Okay, okay, so you heard it as well. Now, now you cannot let us go on that. You have to tell us what, what exactly caused you to self-censor that. What, what exactly was the decision? And what changed in these two years? Do you think the space has expanded in these two years? Or uh, I think emotions have died down. Okay. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, so we know what 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 he's talking about. All right, all right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so let's get let's get that. Yeah. Peace. Hi. Thank you for the sharing. This is very interesting. I think I have a question more relating to the relationship between communities and space. So, how should spaces be like after communities use them? So, to where, what extent do you draw the line in which after communities influence a space that you still remain independent? Yeah, thank you. Uh, sorry, I, I'm not sure I, I get it. So when communities use spaces, they become not independent? That's what Because mm, I have a thing that like when communities kind of use a space, they kind of imbue a space with their own qualities and like their quirks, right. their arts and stuff. Right, yeah. okay, okay. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm not sure I quite understand the question, but uh, let me try and then tackle it. Um, I mean, for us, we have different communities of occupying that space, but I think the the general values that we imbue within for, for Projector is like you embrace diversity. So when you come in, you, you get exposed to stuff that you may not be expecting in a way. Um, and then same thing, that that literally days where because we have three halls at golden mall tower there could be a punk gig in blue room there'll be a queer party in red room and there could be a church renting something in the green room and we've and and you know we've had that and they all end up in the communal space in the foyer uh which is by design it's something that we've we've done before because we want communities to mix interact and be exposed to different kind of um elements in, in Singapore. Nah. And then and then that that piques a bit of curiosity. Um but also we, we attract a certain kind of people to our space uh in a way. So it's it's almost um self selecting in a way. So it I, I think everyone ends up being richer from that experience uh of being of interacting with different communities. And yeah, I mean it, it's it's always been interesting. It's Everyone seems to be able to find their safe space within that generic space, if that makes sense. But I think it's also because of the staff that we have who, who make that space a bit more comfortable and you can show up in whatever you're comfortable in and not be judged and all that. So it's it's a lot of that that kind of it's it's a bit hard to pinpoint, but it's it's a vibe. <laughs> I guess. Very chancy of you. It's a vibe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I I think uh, uh, I agree with Prashant. You just have to be to embrace diversity, reg regardless of your individual stand on on issues. And people will begin to communities will begin to recognize it. It's when you focus too much on one particular community, then uh, yeah, there will be that uh, uh, lashback, uh, or rather that uh, that kick, not kickback. What do you call that? Uh, backlash. Yeah. Right, uh, so I think just embrace diversity. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there are a couple of questions. Uh, one is from Sudim. 
So it's for me, do you, do I consider Tetari Evolid an independent space? I do. Do, do you feel that it offers a sense of escape away from your day job? I think so it's not that bad. And so far, it's, it's pretty independent so far. Uh, if I could answer, uh, being independent doesn't mean that there is no self-censorship. I would lie to myself if I, uh, I do not self-censor and I do. I think I probably self-censor less than many or most Singaporeans, but definitely there is a, a degree of self-censorship. And, and also, you know, humanity has always functioned on the premise that nobody says everything they they think, right? <laughs> 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 so some degree of self-censorship, I think in that sense, is, is normal, is expected. But what we're talking about is uh, of a political angle, right? If I say this, then something will happen. But I wouldn't lie, I definitely uh, engage in that, uh, even while I think it's independent. Uh, from Corey, do you think independent spaces are always expected to be activist spaces in Singapore? So the independent spaces, right? Because uh, if independent spaces, then... Uh, but they are very pro-government, right? Right. Naturally, no, they, there's no government patronage, but they only give talks like pro-government support. But nobody will consider that independent anymore, right? Is that fair? I think for, for us, we are an entertainment space. <laughs> like, so I think that's, I mean, constantly when I, I need to remind our, our staff also that we, you know, ultimately are here to provide entertainment and and then make it accessible for the, the soft power of advocacy and, and activism and all, and then push boundaries through that way. But if you stop having fun, then I think people, you know, get less interested in it. Um, so yeah, I think for us, it's, we, uh, I don't really see ourselves as an activist organization. We, we are an independent organization, but ultimately we do things to have fun and, and then use that to create space for, for other people who, you know, need, need this kind of space. Um, yeah. So it doesn't have to be activist. No, I, I don't think we can be pigeonholed. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I agree with uh, Prashan. I'm always agreeing with you. Yeah, you see what happens is, it seems activist because actually it's the other way around. The POP or the government will never come and use your space. Yeah. Because they have so much space elsewhere. Let's see, yeah? But if they were to come and use the space, or, or apply to use the space that we have, I will be open to it. I have no great sense just because I disagree with views. I will be open to it, yeah? But we just have to pay a bit more because we can afford it, yeah? So, <laughs> I was so foolish, right? So, <laughs> so we can afford more, you pay better. We have some views, we pay less, yeah? Simple as that, yeah. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I would be happy to have all next 10 episodes with PAP members. Honestly, if, if they agree, I'll be happy to have next 10, next 20 episodes. It's just that I, I haven't gotten many yeses with. Okay, so there is a question. It's a bit of a downer, to be honest, but it's a necessary one. What do we do? Where do we go when or if the projector is gone? Hopefully not. When all these rich people are gone or silenced by the harsh reality of censorship, and real estate consumes us, where do all these voices go? 
I guess that's a that's a perennial worry also, right? Of of people who operate in independent spaces that practical realities. I, I think Mr. Mr. Fong is an outstanding example, but he's an anomaly, right? Most people who reach his age would not be like him. They would be much safer. They wouldn't be socialists, right? When they are younger, they'll be socialists. When they are richer, they, <laughs> they become fiscal conservatives, right? So that's the norm. Not, not only in Singapore, throughout the world, surveys have, have borne this out, right? So, uh, so that is a perennial worry, right? When people become, or even the, the earlier word you used, which, which is true. I'm not saying that it's not true, but the more people start picking their battles, they start telling themselves, right? That, oh, actually, right, I'm doing this for the greater good. And they compromise and compromise and compromise until that greater good doesn't come and they are transformed by the process of thinking that I'm doing this for the greater good, right? So all these are perennial worries of uh, activists and independent spaces. So what do we do? No, no, I think for me, well, re the real estate part, which I will address, but it's, it's a genuine concern. I mean, Golden North Tower, where we are at, uh, you know, is constantly on block uh, or on the market. Um, and and we'd never know the moment itself. Uh, we lose we lose the space in about two years. And it's not easy to move a cinema. You can move a shop quite easily to other locations, but because of the way cinemas are scaled, it's not so easy to, to move and, and find replacement spaces in Singapore. Uh, so that's been constantly on our minds. Um, in terms of being sustainable in the long term. But for us, we, we find ways to adapt. Uh, we've, we've done a couple of projects recently. We took over abandoned clubs. We took over disused cinemas, uh, even though it's temporary, but we worked out very good deals with uh, the landlords so that it will make sense for us to occupy these spaces for 18 months or a year. Um, so we've, we've always adapted. I mean, I'm, I'm quite lucky to have a, a team passionate about it. And, and they are willing to, it's, it's exhausting. And let's, let's not discount the labor of running an independent space. It's really a struggle. Uh, and, and, but yet everyone kind of enjoys that, that kind of kampung spirit. And, and the moment people come together and they have fun, you, you get re-energized also. Uh, so we also feed off this energy from, from our community. So I think that's, um, I think one thing that we've learned, particularly since COVID happened also, is to not or, or be ready to adapt to different situations. Um, and then an example would be most recently, I mean, we were eyeing Sini uh, Leisure, which is in Orchard. Uh, okay, and, and just to put some context for a projector to exist, uh, we screen a lot of films that are kind of controversial and therefore gets R21 ratings. And R21 can only exist in the city area uh, because, you know, you cannot influence the heartlands. Um, yeah, so, I mean, also this is not clearly in policy, but it's, it's something that we understand to be, and I wish to be proven wrong. So, I mean, that, that's, that's one thing. So we, the only spaces we can unlock tend to be spaces in the city, which then tend to be more expensive. Uh, but, you know, we, Orchard Cine Leisure was an example where we wanted to unlock it, but it's, it's huge and it's expensive. And there's no way that we can occupy the whole space. Uh, so we did an unconventional approach where 
we actually approached Golden Village to see if they were willing to co-share the space, meaning that we take three halls, they take three halls, and, and we run. And it's never been done before. Uh, we don't know how it's going to happen, but it's going to open in December this year. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, for us, it was it was about not being so stubborn in the way we 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 think of how things need to be and try and adapt and, and figure out ways because there's also that sort of uh, on block hanging over as I go to Mount. Um, so I think to, to summarize, we'll find ways to survive. It may not be exactly what you get in, in Golden Mall. It may be in a soulless mall, but we will create and adapt a space that everyone can feel comfortable in. Um... Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Great man, Prussia. <laughs> yeah. Um... <clears throat> uh, sorry, I, I just lost my train of thought. And this was about, um, so, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, how do we, how do we carry on when the, when the, uh, what is gone, eh? Um, we need to find a capitalist who is a social, who was a socialist at heart. And revive that in him, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna, I will tell you what happened. Uh, I was in Chicago about three years, well, seven, eight years ago. I stumbled across this building called the Poetry Foundation. It was a huge, magnificent building that reached up to like 12, 14 stories high. And the Poetry Foundation, who buys poetry? Right? How did, how did this come about? So I investigated and I found out a capitalist with a socialist heart donated 200 million to the Poetry Foundation. Right? And guess what? All her manuscripts, she read poetry, all her poetry manuscripts have been rejected before. You know? So if you think that she did this because of her uh, poetry, because, because you have been published by these guys, you may support them? No, it's not true. She did it because she really believed in the art, you know, and she had the means. Do we have such people in Singapore? We actually have, but they are afraid. Because when they do this and they buy a cinema for you, they are afraid of what will happen to them. The rest of the world will be gone. And that is actually what is keeping it safe. Thank you. So just now, uh, I wanted to pick up on the on the point, the R21 thing. You said it's not policy, but it's understood by people who operate in the space. So if, and you say you would like to be proven wrong. So if you are wrong, this episode will get a pop now, right? <laughs> 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 and you know that means you're right. I mean, I'm hoping for it. I'm just saying that's how we falsify the... Yeah, maybe <laughs> I can give a little bit context to that. Uh, I think when the R21 ratings were first passed, actually it went out to the heartlands. Cinemas in the heartlands. Yeah. Cinemas in the heartlands were allowed to run R21 movies as well. But I think somebody complained and that somebody is probably 
an influencer, you know, even in those days without social media, you can be an influencer. And so the policy remained as such. It's the same as the Mandarin and the, uh, the dialect thing, you know. Actually, I think the government today is quite happy to let it go. But because more civil servants dare to put it up because of their, they don't want to lose their job, right? If they're broke, we'll fix it, right? So it carries on, right? So we have to push, the civil servants have to regain the spirit of being servants, yeah. Thank you. Any final questions or final couple of questions or comments? Yes, Arun. Oh, okay. Uh, we go Arun first, then Debbie. Test. Um, so, I I keep hearing the the notion of how the precarity of these spaces seem to be forcing your forcing possibly you have to innovate the way you stay sustainable or stay relevant or stay, for lack of a better term, edgy. Um, so would uh, stability then rob you of that? Rob these spaces of that, that, that pushing the boundaries sort of thing that you have? Yes. That's an excellent question. So the moment the PAP opens up, <laughs> no, these spaces will not be edgy anymore. <laughs> No, that's the thing, yeah. So I think it, it applies to all commercial entities. It's not just, you know, independent art spaces. Every business that needs to generate revenue needs to be always on the forefront of innovation and, and trying. And, and if you don't, then, you know, you, you just don't exist anymore. Uh, and that's the way the free market kind of operates. So for us, we are also forced to be always innovating because we know this is the reality of the, the landscape. Uh, I don't think we'll ever be in a stable state at any point. Uh, I mean, we've we've gotten comfortable in that that space of instability and and always constant change. In fact, by the time we settle in Indonesia, we'll always be looking for the next step on on what that is going to be and and what you know these are the spaces whether we can unlock hardland spaces and all that. So I think as a business and as an independent space, we are constantly, we're never in a state, we're always in a state of flux. But, but I guess uh, the question is, if Singapore democratizes, if the PAP democratizes, will your entity cease to be relevant? Uh, I think there's always somebody who needs space. Like, I mean, even, even if PAP democratizes, People will need space. There's always somebody at the bottom rung of that ladder who needs space. So, and we are there for them, you know. Yeah. I think, well, democratization is uh, one thing. Uh, it's going to take some time to happen. Maybe your grandchild will forget to see it. I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah, it will probably happen. But it will take some time, right? Secondly, is that we need to protect the existing spaces, independent spaces that we have, so that these do not disappear. And I'm talking about projector, of course, uh, a space like that, yeah. We'll see more films, we'll go and support them more often, yeah. But there's one space, Hongrim Park, which is really quite independent. Of course, you still have to apply for licenses and so on, but nobody seems to want to use that because it's associated with rebels, 
associated with all those guys who are against the, the, the government, all those, uh, you know, so people are frightened and they don't help it by putting cameras all over the place, right? So I would say, guys, don't be afraid. Go for it. Support whatever causes that you can see there. Protect that space. That was achieved, that space was uh, achieved by, I mean, to, to, I, from, from my perspective, achieved by Dr. Chi, Robert Chishun John, who really pushed for it until Lee Kuan Yew in his uh, interview with uh, some journalists in, uh, in uh, America promised or said, we will make this space, you know. And so Hong Lim Park was born. Yeah. And so let's value it. Let's not avoid it. Yeah. Okay. Final. Oh, okay. So we, we, get, we can take both. Uh, then we first then. We'll take both at the same time. Thank you. Actually, my question is related to what you just said about fear. So, how do we uh, make it more palatable for like mainstream audiences to to be receptive to like alternative viewpoints in your experience? How do we introduce like not new but alternative views of social justice issues, especially to these audiences? So how do we avoid reaching to the crowd, right? Uh, uh, thanks for the sharing and the allegories. So um, I guess what I have in mind is like, maybe it's a question for you. Uh, is the idea of like, is the, is the substation uh, like ever like hanging thought back in your mind? Because more pointed question would be like, do you see yourself as like a spiritual subs, uh, successor to the substation? The initial contact Okay, okay, so uh, so two questions. How how do we make these ideas uh, more palatable to the mainstream? Because, I mean, let's face it, everyone here probably agrees with whatever you have said. <laughs> everyone watching online also, right? So how do you avoid reaching to the choir, to the congregation? And then the other one, do you see yourself as a spiritual successor uh, to the substation? I think how to avoid preaching the choir to, for us it's always about how we create that cross pollination in a way from events, entertainment, activism, and all this. Um, and and a lot of this happens in this communal space that we call intermission bar or, or the or the foyer space. Right? Um, often enough, we actually do have exhibitions and all in this space. So people who may come to watch some fluff kind of movie get exposed to these. Uh, you know, issues and all that, which otherwise they may not be exposed to. Um, so that that's one thing. I mean, the other thing is also for us, just in terms of we often like complementary listing of uh, events, like, you know, Freedom Film Festival and, and other, which may not be our events, but we actually list it in our website. So people going to watch some other film may be exposed to this and, and therefore may be interested to then catch it. I mean, these are quite simple ways that we do, but for us, it's like at least if it helps one or two people be exposed to this kind of thing and know that these things exist. Because a lot of times, organizations do their things, but it's very hard to do the outreach. Uh, but for us, we have a very broad kind of outreach which spans all kinds of demographics and, you know, and particularly in a more lifestyle entertainment kind of thing. So it becomes a bit more palatable. Uh, it's not so scary in a way, and it's not. Like you say, I mean, actually, people do find going to Homling Park a bit more yeah. 
you know, that there's a sense of fear, but going to projector to listen to a talk and all is not so fearful in a way. Um, so I think that that's how we try and create that kind of environment. Mr. Fong, final word? Yeah. Um, I think fear is something that's very real, especially, and, and uh, I do as well. We've always been uh, bombarded, whether by the media or by, by the, the, the powers that be, that it's dangerous to have alternative ideas. It's, it's wrong if you do not follow the official narrative. But it will come. Because the younger people, I mean, give them credit, they are getting more and more... Uh, well, I mean, they, they, they have the ideas. They, they, they know what is right and what is wrong. The, the feelings for truth, the feelings of, for what is... For, for this kind of thing is very much stronger. I'll give you an example. In the early days when... <coughs> When the Workers' Party was going around, trying to raise funds, collecting funds, people would always slide it up to them, have some money in an envelope, and say, take this, you know, cover the face and move away. Seriously, seriously. But today, it's a bit different. There are people who are, PayPal, you, you, you use PayPal, and they do it, right? You don't forget that. Huh? I think uh, Mr. Lo and uh, Silver Lee, they raised almost a million dollars in two days using PayPal, bank accounts, and so on because people were so angry at the injustice being done to them. I mean, at least those guys who donated that, yeah? So I think the young people are getting braver and braver and the, the, the fear is dying off. But it will take time, yeah? It will take time. I think on that hopeful note, please uh, join me in thanking our guest today. It was an excellent, excellent episode. Uh, so you can catch it on Instagram Live and uh, Kogo is here as well. Uh, we, we did the first inner live uh, Tetari Wallet last week and that's also available on YouTube and on Instagram. So thank you very much and thank you everyone for being here. <laughs>